Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This week on The Takeaway, we're looking at food in the United States, specifically how our attitudes about food have changed over time in this country. One piece of that story came 25 years ago with the creation of the Food Network. Bam! That's a little bit like that. A little salt and pepper, and that's going to slide right out. Happiness is a sharp knife. For the first course, you had to find a way to combine catfish, tomatillos, rutabagas, and marshmallows. There is one more ingredient to this battle. Our secret ingredient. It's a crepe challenge, and his crepe was just superior. So how has the Food Network affected our relationship with food? We'll go way back to the start for that answer with the help of Kara Miller, host of WGBH and PRI's Innovation Hub. So you kind of have to go back to the early 1990s, and people who worked in cable at that time, and cable was still a pretty young industry in the early 90s, they understood that even though at that time there were just a few dozen channels it was about to explode. There was going to be hundreds of channels that was coming down the road. And so it, it was a gold mine, right? They were trying to think, what could you possibly put on television? Because you were going to be able to put it all on television. And there was a man named Ree Schoenfeld who had helped launch a little channel, you've probably heard of it, called CNN. And he decided maybe he could also help launch a food-themed channel. Now, the great irony of this is that Schoenfeld knew nothing about cooking, and he and his wife had actually had their kitchen removed from the, their New York City apartment um, because they figured, well, they live in New York. They that's don't pretty hardcore. That, that's a really they, hardcore move there. I think they just had a coffee maker and like a place for dog food, and that was it. But he did also realize that there was one very compelling argument for like having a channel that was all about food. Uh, here's journalist Alan Salkin, who has chronicled the rise of the Food Network. The argument for a Food Network was that it was cheap. That is really as simple as you can get. It was programming you could put on the air 24-7 that wouldn't cost very much. Therefore, if you just sold a few ads, you could go into profit. And so before the new the Food Network went on the air, did people in the food world or in the TV world think that this was going to succeed? You know, Alan Salkin actually says that though there were arguments for the Food Network, the arguments against it were probably more solid at the time. So there were cooking programs already. They were on PBS, most famously Julia Child, right, had hosted a bunch of cooking programs. But there were other people like Martin Yan, who hosted a program called Yan Can Cook. I remember PBS. Yan Can Cook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I watched that, too. These were successful shows, but they were not huge money makers. So a lot of people thought the idea of having a 24-hour food network was craziness. And I talked to a former assistant of Julie Child, Sarah Moulton, who actually then went on to become an on-air personality on the Food Network uh, for just about 10 years. And I asked her, you know, when executives took you out to lunch in New York in the early 1990s and said, do you want to be a part of this network? Like, what did you think? Did you think, this is going to succeed? This is going to make me famous? Never in a million years, ever. I thought the network wouldn't last. Um, and when I first did it, I said to my producer, when I first had my live call-in show, I was like, well, let's just, you know, do three-month contract at a time because I'm just not sure how this is going to work. No, I didn't think it was going to last. 
in the beginning, um, and Sarah Moulton will say this, anybody who you talk to who is on the Food Network will say this, this was a shoestring operation. They would start rolling tape, and if somebody cut him or herself, they would often keep rolling, and the person would have to bandage themselves on television. So this was, they didn't have a whole lot of money in the beginning. But Sarah Moulton said that very quickly, she felt like, I'm being recognized everywhere. She started to wonder, should I wear makeup all the time? Like, even when I go out to get, you know, coffee in the morning, um, because people were always looking at her. And then I think there were a couple of sort of big inflection points for the Food Network. And one was actually right after the attacks of September 11, 2001. And the Food Network, uh, people might remember, they went off the air for a while. They didn't really know what to do. This actually happened to a bunch of cable channels. They just didn't know when they should return to regular programming. And the clamor that came in from viewers, please, please put cooking back on the air, was really quite incredible. And they realized that a lot of people turned to this network for comfort. Um, And then another inflection point, very different, happened a few years later. And it was a new program that the Food Network aired from another country. It was called Iron Chef. It was from Japan. It was dubbed into English. And it just became, it was kind of a crazy uh, show, and it became this huge breakthrough hit. And then Iron Chef Japan had the American chef, Bobby Flay, come on, and that just, like, totally captivated Americans. And I think that started Food Network down a bit of a different path. Well, and that that's where my interest comes into food uh, programming. <laughs> I love the competitive cooking element of these shows. Is competitive cooking really, um, was that a critical part of the rise of Americans watching food programming? Certainly the success of Iron Chef pushed Food Network to have lots more Uh, cooking shows, Chopped and Cupcake Wars and all these things. Um, And they all, if you think about it, have this kind of reality TV dimension to them in in that, you know, people are eliminated, not unlike Survivor or The Bachelor. They have these kind of behind the scenes or like straight to the camera interviews with people. But I think it another aspect of this is that it also kind of affected the culture around food. So people, on one hand, became aware of more unusual techniques, more unusual ingredients, um, and in some ways turning food into a competition with all these kind of, you know, this fancy ingredients and these things you've never seen, it can make you feel like this is super fun to watch, but it is not necessarily doable at home. And and we heard from Alan Salkin earlier, who has written about the rise of the Food Network. He says, you know, obviously the Food Network has not made people stop cooking, but that doesn't mean it hasn't had an effect. Now, the televisions are so big that it almost looks like you're looking at your own kitchen. It's high def. It's like a window, except the kitchen is probably neater than your own kitchen, more updated. And the person cooking is probably more beautiful than the person cooking in your own kitchen. And the food that's being produced is probably more beautiful than anything you can imagine producing. I love that description of like sitting in your easy chair and being like, yeah, that that what I see on television looks good, but I'm not quite so sure that I'm ready to do this at home. And it has coincided the rise of the Food Network with this sort of fascinating phenomenon, uh, which is the decline of actual cooking in America. And we'll talk about that later this week. Kara Miller is the host of the radio program Innovation Hub from our partner station, WGBH in Boston. Thanks so much for being here, Kara. Thank you. 
All this week, we're talking about Americans' relationship to food. And to kick things off, we want to know, how often do you cook meals at home? Do you find joy in cooking, or do you think of it as a chore? Hi, my name is Frances. I'm saying chore, chore, chore. I certainly cook dinner every night as a young woman and young wife and mother. But now I'm a widow, and I'm free, free, free. As a regional truck driver... Staying healthy is very important, so I try to cook all of my meals at home for at least five days on the road. That's three meals a day and snacks. Not only does it help me save money, but it helps me maintain my health. I think cooking is a very necessary survival skill that many young people my age are losing today. This is Marcia Cutting from Bainbridge Island, Washington. I cook nearly all my meals at home unless I'm dining with friends. I'm not sure I'd say I find joy in cooking, though I enjoy it unless I'm really rushed. The high amount of fat in most restaurant foods does not agree with my stomach, unfortunately. I have a house full of picky eaters and it's a pain to get people to agree on food, but I like to eat and I enjoy cooking. The complications have just made it less enjoyable. I do cook a big meal once a week on Sunday dinner and our other kids come over and we enjoy the get together and dinner. It's a nice meal and there are leftovers. I am looking forward to my husband taking care for the chore of meal prep once he retires. Do you cook as much as you would like, or do you cook more often than you'd like? Why? We want to hear from you. Call us at 877-8MY-TAKE, and we just might include your response on the show this week. Again, 877-8MY-TAKE. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway.